0: Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I agree you also, true companion. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, John, for reading God's word. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for another week where we can be able to Think of eternal things uh, in light of just living uh, regularly amongst our normal activities. Um, Lord, we know that everything in this life is vain in relative to the eternal things that you have in store for us. I and mean, we always have this eternal perspective in mind, not just in our daily living, but even in our uh, personal walk with you uh, May we be faithful with what you've given us, and we want to honor you with all things. Be with us this evening as we look at your word, uh, that we become doers of your word and be conformed to your son. In your son's name I pray, amen. Building off of what we discussed last week about unity, I want to take this time to kind of go the opposite, When we talk about division in the church, where there's a separation uh, between people or groups of parties within a church. The church is a place where believers gather together to worship God. And there is a singularity within the body of Christ. And this is normal. The body is one. Therefore, everyone is expected to be united together under the banner of the gospel. But due to our own sinful tendencies and the temptation, we have this inevitably, inevitably there's this temptation to cause division within the body of Christ. Many churches split in history because a group of people decide to seek their own desires instead of what's better for others. Every time there is a division in the church, it temporarily temporarily weakens the church's ability to be a useful instrument of the Lord. People in the church will not be able to do God's will if they are forced to do their own will. Church division, I believe, is a means by which the devil's tries to thwart the usefulness, the uniqueness, and the effectiveness of the church. That means that those who seek to divide the church is against the Lord. If, if obedience to the Lord makes a person a useful instrument, then disobedience to the Lord makes a person useful in the instrument of the devil. We mentioned last week in Ephesians 4 how God commands us to strive to keep the unity that is within the church. And we must, with all diligence, pursue unity because unity in the church gives God full glory. And division in the church diminishes the beauty of our Savior. If you want to divide the church, we're going to—I'll give you three ways. Three ways if you want to divide the church— you can be used by the devil to divide the church in three ways. So this is like a fill in the blank. If you want to be used by the devil to divide the church, here are three ways that you can do it. It's like, first is when we neglect our heavenly citizenship. When we neglect our heavenly citizenship. Second is we choose to cause a schism in the church. And lastly, when we fail to reconcile with one another. Let's look at this first point. When we neglect our heavenly citizenship. Look at verse 1, therefore. Again, just like last week when we were going through Ephesians 4, it begins with the word therefore. Again, it builds off of something that's come before it. And you notice that what's come before this, it's Philippians 3, verse 20, verse 21, where it reads, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul, before this portion of scripture, is highlighting the fact that we are all citizens of heaven, that we belong not of this world, but the world that is to come, that we will one day be transformed from this humbled, broken state into a glorious state state that, uh, that reflects our Savior. Christians are called to eagerly wait with great anticipation to be with Christ, and Paul reminds them that when they reach this heavenly state, they will be transformed completely. They'll be from humble, broken, and weak to glory, perfect, and strong. This is the hope that all Christians have. This is the unity that all Christians have that we will one day be with our Savior, that our home is not of this world. And if we fully understand that, that we have this unity in Christ, that we are made right with the Lord, that we are able to be in the right presence with Him one day in glory, then it should impact the way that we live our life today. If a person truly understands that they are a heavenly citizen... And there must not be division in the body of Christ. The believer's present mindset is driven by future promises that God has made in the past. So have so question for us, this basic question right now is like, have we forgotten our heavenly identity? Have you forgotten that you belong to the Lord, that you are not your own? You belong to Him, and you're subjected to Him. Last week we talked about that being a prisoner of Christ. That means we are chained to him. We obey everything that Christ has to say. And if we forget our true citizenship, if we forget that it is not of this world, we will respond poorly. When we set our minds on things of this world, we will love the things of this world and will cause division to things that are in the church. If we forget the eternal it's because we f- we're dwelling on the temporal. And when I talk about the temporal things in this life, I'm talking about preferences. I'm talking about goals. I'm talking about conflict, desires, or anything that is tied to this world. When there's an overemphasis in desire, these things will cause division in the church. Now, why is that? Because it's, always, it's because people are always wanting to please themselves. When they put their own desires before everyone else's, inevitably people will split the church will split. And that is exactly what the devil wants. It's to make you forget about the eternal things of God by making the members in the church justify their preferences. And we must remember that we belong to the Lord. He is our God, and we have a heavenly citizenship. Notice in verse 1, My beloved brethren whom I long to see, this word, my beloved, it's a, my beloved brethren, is a common phrase that is used in this book. It is used about seven times. In chapter 1, verse 12, it reads, Now I want you to know, brethren, verse four, chapter 1, verse 14, and, the, and that most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God, word of God without fear. Chapter 3, verse 1 Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Verse 17 of the same chapter. Brethren, join join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the patterns you have in us. And down in verse in verse eight of chapter four, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Paul uses the phrase "brethren" to show that he has a oneness with them; that he has a unique relationship with the people that are in this church. The heavenly citizenship is something that they all have in common. They all belong to God, and therefore they are precious and beloved to Paul. Paul has a huge heart for this church, and it's evident by the great desire to go and see them. Notice here, it says, whom I long to see. It's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's a strong desire to be with them and to have fellowship with them. He's saying that at any given opportunity, he would want to be with him, to, to, to fellowship, to worship God together. If Paul had his way, he would have left the prison that he was at to be with this church. It's a strong understanding of our heavenly citizenship that will cause us to want to be excited, to be with other believers. Paul understand that Paul understood that, and he strong desires to be with the body of Christ. Now, I want to ask us this this evening, do we have this type of desire when it comes to the church, when it comes to our local body? Do we have the same desire? When we think about Sunday, when we think about Friday, when we think about the flock groups, is this something that we desire to be a part of? Or do we long to be with other believers? If you want to be used by the devil to destroy the church, one thing that you do is to be completely separated. Disconnect yourself from the church. Be disengaged from the church. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. we We're going to look over a quick passage about what the devil wants to do. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter is a book about suffering. And, Paul, and Peter is writing to the leaders of the church and is giving them instructions before he gets killed. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, you notice that in verse 2... He tells these shepherds to shepherd the flock among them, exercising oversight and understanding, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sword gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So he's telling leaders of the church of what they need to be. He's telling that you need to watch over them. You need to guard the flock. And the example that he gives us in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will see the unfading crown of glory. We're looking at our our chief shepherd example as as shepherds of a flock. And he goes down in verse 5 to talk about how young men need to submit to the elders. They need need to humble their own heart to these leaders that God has ordained within the church. Verse 6, therefore humble Yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And notice verse 8: Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is warning the, the, this church as well as every other passage, that we need to guard ourselves because it is very easy for individuals who are separated from the church to be devoured by the devil. You notice the word here is seeking someone. It's singular. It's someone that is alone, someone that's separated from the body, someone where there is no accountability, where there isn't anyone to watch over them, to, guard, to help them. These are the people that the devil looks for, and these are the ones that they will try to devour. And as believers, we understand that, that that's why we want to be part of the church, to, to help us fight the good fight, to, to, to not be in the position where we can compromise. This is why we love to be part of the church, because the things of the Lord is present in the church. And when people drift away, when people want to leave the church, inevitably they will be devoured. And I don't mean that like literally like a demon comes and eats them. What I mean by that is that they, their hearts get turned away from the faith. I have been a believer for a while now, and have, and the common pattern that I see with people that leave the faith is that they first and foremost have a lack of desire for the Lord, and then they have a lack of desire to be a part of the church. When you see these two patterns, inevitably people will want to just leave the faith altogether. And I would encourage all of us to not to... To not have the desire to not be part of the body. Be like Paul here where he longs to be with those that are in the church. As believers, every time we go to church, every time we go to a meeting, it should be a homecoming for us. It should feel joyful for us. It should be sweet for all of us to be with other believers because we are one family. Notice that, go back to Philippians 4, and you'll notice that Paul talks about how this church is this joy. And crown. This idea here is that uh, this group of people, this church here, brought him a tremendous amount of joy. Another way of saying it that life is better because this church is in his life, because he is with. He knows that he has this common unity with them that brings him great joy. Paul was in prison at this time, and he was awaiting his trial. Yet despite the seemingly gloom and depressing situation, he derives great joy from this church. Paul sees and knows their love towards him, and is completely overwhelmed by their care for him. And that's what brings him great joy. This book is often... Uh, titled The Joy Epistle, The Joyful Epistle. The one that, when people read it, you see a whole bunch of joy in it. And I would argue that the reason why there is a lot of joy in it is because there is a unity in it. This book highlights the humility within the, the church body. There's P- this part in Philippians 2. It's the hypostatic union about how Jesus humbled himself and we should to be an example for it. When we see the end of chapter 2, there's Timothy and Epaphroditus. These two people are willing to humble themselves and risk their lives for the gospel. I preached on this section a few months ago about how Epaphroditus nearly died for the sake of the gospel. These people understood that they... Are one body, and they cared for each other. The, Timothy and Paphrodite, they were willing to risk their lives so that Paul can be taken care of in prison. Paul understood that. He, knew, he knows how much the church loves them, and, he drive, and it gives them great joy to see how everyone here is united in service to one another. He calls them his crown. It's this idea of heavenly reward language here. He's confident that one day he will be with them, if not in this life, then the next life in glory. These precious saints will one day be with him in glory, and, he's, and, he, he, will, and he treasures that reality. One day when, he's, when he reaches the heaven, well, actually at this point in time, he's in glory now, and all the people in the Philippian church are there with him. And he will look at them, and he's reminded of the fact that God has saved these individuals to, to minister to him when he was on earth. He looks at these saints in heaven. He sees them as his crown and joy. It's his reward in the sense that he gets to be with these saints forever. Paul's crown or reward is that he can dwell in heaven and worship the Lord, not just in this life, but the life to come. I wonder if you see your brothers and sisters in this way. When you look at your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, you see them as a crown and joy. The people that you're ministering to or the people that you're ministering with, do you see them as cr- your crown and joy? Are you excited knowing that the believer that you serve or the believers that you're serving with will one day be in glory with you? How do you view your fellow brothers and sisters? Is it in the positive or in the negative? Do you see them as a, as a privilege to serve them or do you see them as a burden? Paul View these saints, although fallen, he views them in such a positive light. And we must do the same as well. And one way that the devil destroys the church is by making the members in the church view each other as something less than they, that they actually are. They see them not, it's the devil's work to try and make us see each other, not in terms of joint heirs, or see each other as brothers and sisters in the faith, but see each other as a stumbling Block or or adversary or or burden or thorn in the flesh. That is what he wants to do so that we can cause division amongst one one another. But it's interesting, if you look at verse eight in this chapter, Paul tells him, I've just read this earlier, about how we need to dwell on these things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, anything that's of good repute, anything that's excellent, anything that's worthy of praise. He's telling these people to dwell on these things, not just in general about life, but also with one another. When you look at one of your, your brothers and sisters in the faith, these are the things that you dwell on, even if they are sinners, even if they've sinned against you. You want to dwell on the things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute. Dwell on these things. I don't doubt for Paul and for us, whenever we're doing ministry, that there's going to be people that are difficult Or people that will make us feel really uncomfortable. But we must dwell on the things that are honoring to the Lord. We want to see each other as a joy and crown. Notice that Paul continues verse 1. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's reminding them of the realities that they have in Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. It's not standing firm in your preferences. It's not standing firm in other things, but it's to stand firm in the Lord. Paul wants them to stand firm and to, continue to view each other with heavenly standing in view. This word stand firm is a military term. It's to hold your position. It's to stay grounded. It's stand firm no matter what opposition is before them. You just Fight to be grounded on these eternal values. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, when that closing epistle, Paul writes, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's in light of eternity and the promise that God has made in store for all believers that we must stand firm together. Paul wants them to share the same views that he has towards them. And commands him, stand firm in that reality. If you want to divide the church, forget the heavenly promises that God has for us. Stand firm on things that does not matter. Stand firm on your preferences. Stand firm on your own desires. You can be used by the devil to divide the church when you forget the eternal realities that you share with another believer. When we forget what we have together in heaven, we will fight over everything and strive only to please ourselves. And that's my encouragement for us, that we do not become this way, that we are focused on standing firm in truth, and that we're not divided over things that are so temporal and so fading. Not only can you be used by the devil to divide the church when you you neglect your heavenly citizenship, but also when you choose to cause a schism. Our second point this evening: When we choose to cause a schism, notice verse two. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Notice the phrase again: It's in the Lord. It's focusing. It's emphasis on God alone. You focus on Him. Paul's urging both these two individuals to be reconciled. This word urging is, 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 is begging or pleading. It's trying to get someone to get on your side. He's pleading them to live in harmony with one another. Not much is known as, about these two, but we know that just because they're in the scriptures that they're somehow prominent figures in the church. They're not fighting over anything major doctrinally. Otherwise, Paul will address that. But Paul here is just telling them that these two need to resolve their issues. But whatever, and, and, and it doesn't say exactly what these issues are. Whatever it was, it was big enough that Paul had to address it in, in an epistle. They were not only impo- important to the church, but they had this close relationship with Paul. He had some sort of close relationship with other people in the church as well. Paul wanted them to be peacemakers. Matthew 5 tells us that blessed are the peacemakers, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But Paul tells them to to seek out ways to reconcile with one another. We must be willing to help one another reconcile the problems in our lives. These two fellow soldiers with Paul, they're fellow soldiers with Paul, but for whatever reason, they are at war with one another. I personally can't wait to meet these two in heaven because it's like, you know, what, did you, what happened? Why were you written in, by, by God's divine word to be in this for us? To know that you guys have some problem in the church. These two were infamous. They, these two were famous in the church, and now they're infamous throughout, church, throughout the church age. They're notorious for being not united and living in harmony with one another. But yet Paul pleads with them to live in harmony. This means to, to live rightly, to have the same mind. Philippians 2.2 has the same similar idea. Make my joy complete by becoming of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intend on one purpose. It's the same word that's used to describe his joy being made complete here. Paul wants them to have the same mindset. Interestingly, when you read this, Paul isn't choosing sides. He's not taking one side over the other. He's not saying I'm on Yodi's side and, okay, sympathy, you need to repent. He's not taking sides. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's some sort of conflict that's probably a preference. He's not taking any sides. He's just being wise and telling them to live in harmony with one another. He appeals to both of them to humble themselves and to live in harmony. Paul again seeks to be a peacemaker rather than taking sides on things that are not doctrinal. Conflict is bound to happen in any stage of life and potentially with anyone in the church. And it will happen. You may be in one now or you may know someone that are, it, that are in conflict with one another. Yet we, are all, we should always be seeking to have peace over our own desires and preferences. We need counsel ourselves out of these things. When conflict arises, oftentimes when you trace it down, it's always something that's the, just preferences. It's always something temporal. It's always something vain. But when the conflict arises, we must be like Paul here who appeals to people to deny their preferences and humble themselves to live in harmony with one another. This is our picture of our Savior, is it not? When we tell people to deny themselves, the hope is not that they just stop doing what they're doing, but we're hoping that they can learn to identify with our Savior more by humbling themselves like our Savior humbled himself. Again, this is what Philippians 2 mentioned. This is it's really important for us to understand Philippians 2 because when we know that Christ humbled himself and we're supposed to follow him, we should be able to humble ourselves as well. We need to remind ourselves that our goal is to be Christ-like. And if Christ is willing to give up his life for us, we should be willing to give up any preferences for any one of us. Jesus came to serve and not to be served he, he denied his own rights he laid it aside for the sake of the church and when we appeal people when we appeal for people to deny themselves or even if you're struggling to deny your own preferences now remember that our savior gave it all so that we could be united with one another for that we could ultimately be united in him christ gave up everything so that we could be united with the father And we must be able to do something so much less, so infinitely less than just giving up our own desires for one another. Division in the church is not a true element of Christian living. We cannot be a church that exalts or attempts to exalt and glorify God and and be divided in the body. If we place our own desires and preferences above everything and everyone else, we will not be able to do anything that is pleasing to the Lord. Paul wants them through pleading and through pleading to look past whatever is causing them to be self-seeking and to be self-sacrificing the way our Savior was. And this is our call as well. Ask yourself this question. Is, is there anything in your life that you're holding on to that's causing division within the church? One of the greatest lies the devil has taught and influenced our world is that you can have it your way. Try to make everything like Burger King. If you have it your way, it'll be better. And then we think of that way, that's, we think that's how our life should be, too. If we have our way, then life would just be so much better. If I have ministry my way, then life would just be so much better. If I have the worship music my way, then things would be so much better. Now, these are focusing on yourself instead of, of others. This is a mentality that starts with yourself instead of focusing on the glory of God. Sadly, some church members have bought into this lie and has caused divisions within the body of Christ. That means that for us, whenever we see a division in the church, it's a deliberate act. It is a deliberate act of their own self-interest. People choose to live out their desires instead of denying themselves, instead of dying to themselves, instead of laying down their own preferences. Striving for unity will cost you. Striving for unity will mean that it will Mean that you may not have what you want all the time. You can relate to Christ more through this, though. You can relate to Christ more when you're willing to lay down anything for another person. In some ways, not letting go of your preferences reveals what's the, reveals the idols that are in your own heart. It reveals what matters most to you. Not only can we be used by the devil to split the church by forgetting our eternal. Citizenship, or if we choose to cause division in the church. But lastly, we can be used by the devil to cause division in the church when we fail to reconcile with one another. Our last point when we fail to reconcile with one another. You'll notice in verse 3 indeed, true companion. What is interesting about this phrase here is this. Ray's true companion. Uh, Paul, for the most part of this letter, has been talking to people in general. But for some reason, this part of the letter, he's talking to one individual specifically. And I hold to the view that the word true companion is actually just, it was a wordplay. It's not just that this is just a true companion, meaning just a general reader, but it's actually someone with the name true companion. In the Greek, true companion is Suzuku, and that's not a cool or appealing name. So I think that's why some translators use use true companion. And Paul is telling him that this person, this person that's this name meaning is true companion, to live up to that name. Paul is using wordplay here. I did some research on some of your names to see, like, okay, what does your name mean? I wonder if some of you guys ever Google what does your own name mean. I Google, okay, so I Google, so I'm, I'm sorry if I use you for example. I should have asked you beforehand, but it's too late now. So there's, you know, there's Tiff and Tim, our beloved uh, Tiff and Tim of our, uh, of our of joint heirs. Timothy, do you know what Timothy means? Some of you might actually might know. Timothy means to honor God, which is a cool name, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like he, when Tim is faithful in the church, he's living up to that. He's honoring the Lord. He's living up to his name. Tiffany, do you know what Tiffany means? It means manifestation of God. So it's like, okay, well, there's no way that she can live up to that because, you know, that will be idolatry and idol worship. I'm sure her parents would not know that that's what her name meant. But it's a good name, but just that that's what it means. It means that you're a manifestation of God. I suppose if you're a believer, then yes, you're being Christ-like, then you are living up to your name. Uh, the name Brian means high and noble, so if, you're, if, you're, if, there's, if you're King Brian, then you've lived up to your name. You're, there's someone that is of, of high and, and held esteem. If you're Alex, whether it's Alex fan or Alex the girl or Alexandra, Alex means protector of mankind, which is an awesome name. <laughs> if, for example, if Alex was, was at a war and he's supposed to defend humanity and he cowards away, We can say, dude, man, live up to your name, man. You're a protector of mankind here. This is the idea of what Paul is doing with with true companion here. He's telling them, he's telling this individual, true companion, to live up to your name, to come alongside these two individuals, to be a true companion, to come alongside them and help these two ladies reconcile their differences. What Paul is saying that he wants him and the churches to aid and to assist these two ladies. He hopes that they would be peacemakers. It's interesting that in this verse, it's implied that there is some attempt to reconcile to one another, but not completely, not fully. They haven't fully reconciled yet. But Paul reminds them, this true companion, of how important these two women were. They shared in the same struggle. This word "shared" the same struggle. It's, it's two Greek words. "Soon ethaleo," "soon" meaning it's a prefix meaning. Together with, and Athela sounds like the word athlete. It means together with struggle. I it mean it's 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 intended so that it's a picture of these two people with Paul and others at one point exerting a tremendous amount of energy and focus that is needed in sports, but instead of putting it in sports, they put it in gospel ministry. This is this is the type of effort that they had together, that they were striving together, that they were They were ministering together, with using tremendous amount of force and energy. The same picture is used early on in chapter one, verse twenty-seven. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. These individuals, these two individuals were at one point striving together. They wrestled the non-believing world together. And yet, for some reason, they were once fighting with Paul, and now somehow they're fighting against one another. And look at the end at how Paul reminds them. He said that he said, Share with the gospel and the cause of the gospel, Str- share with the struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers. Again, there's a whole group of other believers, but yet Paul here at the end writes, whose names are in the book of life. He's reminding them again of their heavenly rewards, of their salvation. The cure for division is to look towards eternal realities, it's to look toward your eternal rewards. All those that are mentioned that are in the book of life, these are people who bring great joy, and that's what we need to focus on as well. There's a common in their heavenly realities. This language is to remind them of the heritage that they all share together. If you want to be used by the devil to divide the church, never attempt to reconcile or restore the relationships that are in the church. Allow tension and sin to fester between people. And now again, I'm not saying you need to be nosy and you see something like, hey, is a division going on here? Tell me, tell me, tell me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you're aware of, of problems between one brother and another or one sister and another, that you seek to reconcile the two together. If you know that there's sin between two people, if you know that there's a problem between the two, it is your responsibility to encourage them to seek reconciliation. I encourage all of us to be like this true companion here, Someone that is uh, that, come, that will come alongside these individuals that seek to solve problems within people in the church, because they love these individuals. It's not because we want to be like detectives and solving problems, but because we love the we want to preserve the unity that's in Christ. And I know some of the people here today this evening are like the Yoda I- and the Synthes. You guys are struggling with wanting to reconcile with one another. And I would encourage you to not be divided in the church. Instead, be in the same mind in the Lord because of the eternal reward that you will have with this other person that you're having conflicts with. Be in the same spirit. Be filled with the spirit and restore the relationship with one another. If you want to be used by the devil to slander God, to diminish the glory of God... Neglect your heavenly citizenship. Choose the cause of schism and fail to reconcile with those in the church. Do these things regularly and diligently and watch as the whole world sees the church and laughs and scoffs at the name of Christ. If the, the world is watching, even if you're aware of it or not, our actions, for better or, or worse, will send a message to those that are watching the church. If there is disunity in the church, what authority do we have or what audacity do we have to tell people to come be united with us, to come to be part of our body so that they can be united with Christ? If they see us and they see a division, what what difference does it make between what how they handle problems and how the church handles problems? We lose our our gospel influence when there's division in the church. And we have, and the church is like the safest place. It should be the easiest place for us to be united. I mean, it's like home court advantage here. And if we fail to be united in the church, don't expect people outside the church to take our gospel message seriously. If we lose footing inside the church, we will sink completely outside the church. But if you want, this is to show the world, to show the watching world how great our God is. We must first be united in the bond of peace that is found in Christ within the church. And that's my hope for us. As we go and do flock groups, as we go in just our regular lives and living our Christian lives with one another, that we strive for unity, that we don't want to cause division over things that really have no eternal significance. And I pray that for our church I think for for the most part, our church is doing a good job in that, and I do hope that we continue to excel still more. And if there are some that are struggling with this, and I do pray for you as well, that you seek unity over division. May we strive to pursue the bond of peace within the body of Christ together. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful humbled by your words. We know that it is really difficult for us to to, to to deny our own desires, but yet this is what you've expected us to be. You expect us to be people that are constantly thinking of others, um, to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable so that people, so that the church could be united. And Lord, I ask for grace for all of us that we're able to to Lay aside the things that doesn't matter for sake of unity in the church Lord give us grace give us ability to love the church the way that you want us to love love the church um, humble us Lord and give us grace to be able to reconcile with whoever uh, we may have conflict with in hopes that your name will be praised and worshiped Lord be with us this evening as we uh, have some time of fellowship and uh, food that the conversations would be edifying and would be building up one another and uh may we enjoy the evening together as a body of christ pray all these things in your son's name amen just some closing reminders uh i have two things that i wanted to share next week uh brian is going to come and preach on the service of the church the service in the church I'm looking forward to hearing all of the different guys, the men that are going to come, uh, and just share God's word with us. Um, that's the first reminder. Uh, second one is that uh, if you are not part of flock groups, I just kind of going to give you like a uh, little information what, about what flock group is. Uh, flock groups is just a way for us to break down the church body so that we can be so we can get to know each other more. Uh, as church gets bigger and bigger, we want to be able to have different people to pour into your life. Uh, that you're not alone, that you're not the one just kind of scattered away. Uh, but we want you to be part of this because it allows you to have uh, more accountability, to have people to watch over you and to care for you. Um, this is just part of what church life is. Uh, in the early church, in the book of Acts, actually, uh, they met every single day uh, because it wasn't like they de- designate one specific day. They they met in homes. They, they had this life-on-life um going on within the body of Christ, and that's what we want to model as well. We want to give you guys opportunity to to be shepherded and to be cared for, even to care for other people. Uh, in a lot of ways, these flock groups are just—they're uh, like the life of the church. You get to be in each other's lives. You get to see each other in different contexts, and you know—and you'll know how to love and care for one another. Um, so that's my hope. If you're interested in that, it's not mandatory. We're not saying like, if you don't do this. You're excommunicated you know we're not like that Uh, but we are saying that we just want to encourage you that if you want to have opportunity to be in a group um, feel free to talk with Alex or myself and Roger and we would love to get you plugged in any way that we can we have I think we have almost a group on every single day except for Friday and Sunday Uh, so if you're interested uh, we even have Saturday groups too so uh, we want to make it easily available for you so that you can have people to be a part of to be more assimilated into the body of Christ Uh, With that said, just uh, enjoy a time of fellowship, and I think food's coming soon. Uh, We're trying trying to smoothen that out, but uh, yeah, enjoy a time of fellowship. Uh, Thanks, and good evening.